A week goes by so fast, it's hard to believe. Six days since we sat down here together for the first time on this retreat. Boy. <laughs> As I was um, just um, doing some walking up and down, just trying to let some thoughts come for the talk this evening, just just so many things that I'd like to talk about. Just a week just isn't enough time to to uh, to say it all. And don't want to be here until ten, eleven, twelve o'clock tonight. <laughs> At least you don't, I'm sure. Although <laughs> in Asia, it's very common for the teachers to begin the Dharma talk at the very end of the day, like at 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and then go on for several hours. <laughs> and everyone is expected to, to be there. Not necessarily expected to be awake, but <laughs> expected to be there for it. And, hmm. So at this, this time of retreat coming closer to the end, the, uh, the question that, that very commonly comes is, what from this retreat can I take home with me? How many have had that, that kind of a thought? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's grasping, isn't it? <laughs> I think maybe, um, maybe a more appropriate way of wording the question would be, what from this retreat can come home with me? What has, what has settled enough within my being? What experiences have I had? What insights have I had? What has come to me and has settled enough into my being that I don't have to take it? It just comes with me. And then um, perhaps, perhaps a more important question is, how will that show in my life? Or how would I like it to show in my life? Insights are wonderful things to have, but it seems to me that if they don't affect us in some way in our actual lives, what's the point? Meditation experiences are, can be wonderful things, even the difficult ones. But if they don't affect us, if they don't touch us in some way and affect us somehow in our lives, what's the point? We just go on more retreats, collecting more experiences, having more insights, maybe writing them down, trying to remember them. And then we go home and we think back, oh, yeah, I had that experience. Oh, oh yeah, I had that insight. We listen to the talks. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Forgot about that. Don't remember that. What, what have we allowed to settle within our being enough so deeply that it's touched us? And how would we like that to show in our lives? 
things show in our lives through our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And so I think in, in going back to our daily lives, maybe not going back, maybe it's going forward, going ahead into our daily lives, it's really the, the thoughts, the words, and the actions that need our attention. How do I want these experiences, these insights, these teachings to manifest in my life? So I began almost a week ago with uh, the Buddha's statement that in life we experience dukkha and explored that and then went on to the cause of dukkha, the underlying cause of dukkha being the craving and the clinging. And we explored that. And hopefully hopefully you've taken advantage of the conditions here and the all the supports and the the practices, the meditation and the qigong to do some exploration of that on your own, in your own experience, in your own life. To explore the dukkha and to explore, to 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 really look into it and see what is the underlying cause in my experience. Not because the Buddha said it, but in my experience. And hopefully, hopefully through that exploration, you've had at least some taste, some flavor, some sense of what it what it what it is to drop the cause to know the ending of dukkha the third statement and we explored that together and i spoke about how um how the the ending of dukkha the third statement is nibbana and then i left off um 1 2 3 4 days ago <laughs> Uh, with this statement from the the Pali English Dictionary that Nibbana is not a transcendent state, it's an ethical state. And I think this is very much related to how we would like all of this to manifest in our lives. I hope it is. And so if we continue on, if we continue on from this third statement, the, um, the, the knowing, the, the letting go, the releasing, the abandoning, the setting aside of the craving and the clinging, and the nibbana that's experienced with that, then takes us to a fourth statement, and the fourth statement of the Buddha is the path. And the, 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 the knowing, the sensing, the, the first glimpse of Nibbana, the first knowing of, this, of the, the ending of dukkha, the, the dropping of the craving and clinging and, the, and knowing the ending of dukkha, even just for a moment, this first taste of Nibbana is said to be the entry into the path which is the fourth statement, the path. 
this is the this is the entry. It's the beginning point. It's not the end. It's the entry. And it's interesting when when we look at it in that way, when we look at it how how the Buddha gives the path as the fourth statement. It's like the end point. And yet normally I think we would we would probably think of the path as being the beginning. We start on the path. We set out on the path. And we have this idea, well, I'll set out on this path and I'll follow the path. And when I get to the end, ah, nirvana. But the Buddha says, no, no, nirvana is the entry to the path. But actually, I think it's, I think it's some of both. I think it's some of both. I think, I think we, we can see the path in two ways. So one way we can see it is as a path that's leading us in a certain direction. And then we can also see it as the path that we're on. Um, and, and the fact of being on the path is the direction. And it's it's interesting also when we when we look at the uh, when we look at the path. So the the path the path is interesting. Traditionally, it's presented as having three aspects to it. And the first aspect is ethics. It has an ethical aspect to it, which is which is interesting because the Buddha, if you remember back, the Buddha began begins his teachings with ethics. And so the path, the, the first section is considered to be ethics. The second, the, second, the second aspect of the path is the meditation aspect, the meditation and the inquiry. And the third aspect is the wisdom, the wisdom aspect. And this is kind of a, a, logical, a logical path, isn't it? We start with the ethics, we have an ethical foundation, and then we do the practice and we arrive at wisdom but the Buddha then turns this all around somewhat um, he, he, he enumerates the path as having eight aspects to it eight, eight parts it's called the eightfold path the noble eightfold path and it's, and it, and it's, it's also interesting to see that when he enumerates the eight Parts, he doesn't begin with ethics. He begins with wisdom. He begins with wisdom. And so it's, it's following on. The, the, from Nibbana is the entry into the path. So the entry into the path is wisdom. And the first of the eight, the first part of the path, the first... The, the first in, in, the, in the list is, is called right understanding. And the term right here, this is the, the common translation, the, the, Pali, the Pali word is sama, which is translated as right. But I prefer to translate it myself as um, wise or skillful or appropriate. So, with the understanding, wise understanding. And what the Buddha meant by right understanding or wise understanding is an understanding of 
the first three statements. An understanding of, of dukkha, of the cause of dukkha, and the ending of dukkha. And, and, and this also follows on from, in the sense of the path following the first three statements. So the first three come first. But I think, I think if we look at our own actual experience, I think if each one of us, if we, if we ask the question, and, and we put out the question right at the beginning of the retreat, um, but if we ask the question now, why did I come on this retreat? Why did I come on this retreat? Why do I meditate? Why am I interested in meditation? I think that each one of us, if we went down deep enough into the question, it would come to some variation on the theme of because there's unsatisfactory things in my life and I'd like to feel better about it. I experienced dukkha and I want to end it. And I would guess that. I would, I would, I would, I'm not a betting person, so I'll just guess. I won't bet on it. I'll just guess. Um, I, would, I would guess that each one of you have had, each one of us have had some glimpse of at least the possibility of ending, of the ending of dukkha. And that, that possibility, it's that, that, that glimpse, that sense of the possibility that allows us to try something. If we had never had that, if we just fully, totally believe to the depths of our being that there's no possibility, why would we try anything? So we have that wisdom, varying degrees, varying depths of awareness with it, but we all have that wisdom. And so we enter in the path. So we're here because of our wisdom. And I think that's a really important point for us for us all to reflect on and to remember and to remind ourselves of from time to time. You know, maybe when that when that inner critic starts to fire up, just remember, wait a minute, there's wisdom here also. Right understanding is some degree of understanding of of these statements. And then the second the second part which um, which follows on a bit from the uh, the first part, and the second part is also considered to be part of the aspect of of the the wisdom aspect of the path, and the second is right or wise or skillful intention. It's about our intention. So we could ask in coming on retreat, what's what's my intention? And we could ask at the end of a retreat, all right, what's my intention now as I go back into my life? What's my intention? And how, and how will the teachings, my experience, my insights, how will that support my intention? And I think this, um, this statement of intention, this 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 aspect of intention, although it's it's grouped in the the wisdom aspect, I think it's very much 
a part of the ethics aspect because it involves our life. It's about our life, how we want our life to manifest, how we want to be, what we want to what we want to manifest through our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. What's our intention? For the Buddha, the right intention had three parts to it. There were three three parts, three bits of right intention. And the first the first one is one that most of us here in the West really don't like to think about. But I think it's a really important one to consider, to reflect on, to look at in our own lives. And it's getting more and more important. And that is the intention for renunciation. Renunciation. So when we think of renunciation, we think, oh, I have to give up everything. I have to go live in a cave or live in a, a little hut with, you know, with nothing there and give up all my nice things and and um, I don't want to do that. just don't want to do that. I think every time I come to a retreat center in the in the in the West, the Gaia house is is not as bad as some, but the the level of comfort that's provided, the level of ease that the retreat centers provide to support us in our practice, which is wonderful. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to have that support. But you go on retreats in Asia. You learn about renunciation very quickly, <laughs> but um, but I think I think in our own lives, and I think I think the way our society is heading. I think renunciation is going to become more and more important. The resources of this world are finite. We can't keep using them at the rate we are using them. And if the rest of the world starts using them at the same rate, we are doomed. It's an ethical issue. We look at the environmental disasters, we look at the the economic disasters, we look at the growing gap between rich and poor. It all needs renunciation. And what is what is renunciation? It's yes, it's giving up things, it's giving up things, but I think I think the the root of it, the root, it's you know, yes, we can give up things, we can pick and choose. Yes, I can give up this, I can I can use a little bit less electricity, I can use a little bit less oil, I can drive my car a little bit less. We can do all that. But at the root of it, renunciation is the ending of greed. It's the ending of greed and the ending of self-centeredness and selfishness. And so much of the teachings are pointing to this. The, 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 teachings on, the teachings on dependent arising, the teachings on not separate selfness, it's all pointing to, to interconnectedness and interdependence and non-selfishness, non-self-centeredness. 
losing that belief that I'm the center and I'm important. Renunciation. The other two aspects of uh, right intention are the intentions for non-harming and non-ill will. Very much ethical issues. Non-harming and non-ill will. And, of course, non-harming is very much related to the renunciation. You know, the greed, the greed of the world causes so much harm. And, and it's, it, it's really giving attention, giving attention to our thoughts, our speech, our actions, and seeing where are these causing harm, contributing to harm, and where are they contributing to non-harm, non-ill will. This is an important area for us to look into in our lives because this is where our life manifests. How do we want our life to manifest? In causing harm, in expressing ill will, or in non-harm and non-ill will? So, so intention, intention I see is kind of the bridge between it, it bridges wisdom and the next aspect, which is the ethical aspect, the ethical aspect of the path. And the ethical aspect of the path has three parts to it. The first is speech, right speech, wise speech, appropriate speech, skillful speech. It's really about bringing attention to our speech and being mindful of our speech and speaking in a way or at least cultivating, practicing, speaking in a way that brings us towards our intention. So aspects of, aspects of, the, uh, of, of the speech, of right speech, of wise speech that the Buddha specifically referred to, obviously not lying not gossiping, not spreading rumors. Not speaking out of anger, out of ill will. So again, giving attention, really bringing attention to speech and seeing where is our speech? Where is my speech contributing to harm? And where is it supporting the ending of dukkha? for myself and for others. Giving attention to, to the, way, the way we speak, to what we're saying, not just what we're saying, but how we say it, who we're saying it to, when we're saying it, what's our intention with saying it. The Buddha spoke of, of right speech as saying the right, saying the right thing to the right person at the right time. So it's saying what's appropriate and what's helpful, what's beneficial, and saying it to the person who needs to hear it, 
in a way that they can hear it and at an appropriate time, at a time when they're able to hear it. I think it goes for speaking to ourselves too. Speaking to ourselves in a way, you know, the, maybe maybe sometimes maybe sometimes that critical voice needs to be listened to. If it's saying the right thing to the right person at the right time, <laughs> then it can be heard. It can be heard. It can be taken in. You can say, oh yeah, I should pay more attention to that. I really do need to pay more attention to that. Right speech. Next one is right action. Right action. Our actions. And right action... um, Right action traditionally by the, in, the, in, the, in the texts comes down to the, re- the rest of the five precepts, the other four precepts. Can you remember them? <laughs> okay, so not, not killing, not stealing, not, um, not using intoxicants, and not causing harm through sexual activity. Harm or oppression or domination. Causing dukkha. So traditionally, this is, this is what right action is. So, but it's, it's, again, it's about our actions in life. It's about giving attention to our actions. Giving attention to our actions... Again, to see where are my actions causing harm to myself and or others? Where are my actions contributing to non-harm, to the ending of dukkha? Where are my actions expressing ill will? Where are they contributing to non-ill will? Where are they coming out of non-ill will? A couple of nights ago, I spoke about um, I spoke about the uh, the 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 non separateness, the non separateness in in Pali. The word is anatta, anatta. It literally literally translates as without self. It means without self centeredness, without selfishness. It's that knowing that knowing of knowing of the the non-separateness, the knowing of the interconnectedness, the knowing of how we all exist in relation to each other. And I talked about how how that knowing gives rise to the metta, the kindness, the friendliness, and compassion. And so 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 this aspect of the path very much comes out of the wisdom. When the wisdom is present, this is what manifests. But it's also a path. It's also a path. It's also a practice. I recently read um, read a story about uh, a woman who decided that she would become a nun so that she could do lots of meditation and study and 
do lots of retreats and um, and lots of practice and get enlightened so that she could help others by setting up an orphanage. So she became a nun, and for years she practiced. She she did lots of retreats. She studied all the texts. She she went through all this, and she got to a point where one day she thought, oh, I've been doing all this for all these years. I'm still not enlightened. If I wait until I'm enlightened, I'll never get this orphanage. I'll never help these people. And she so she decided, I'm just going to go out and start an orphanage. <laughs> and she went out and she started an orphanage. And the orphanage became her path. To me, this was the enlightenment showing. The wisdom was showing. The wisdom came through. Manifest, manifest the wisdom by contributing to the ending of Dukkha. And so that's what she did. So we don't have to wait until we're in until we think we're enlightened. We don't have to wait for some some amazing experience that we think is going to mean that we're enlightened. <laughs> or some or some amazing insight. Then we can say, oh, now I've got it. Now I'm enlightened. Now I can be kind and friendly and compassionate. (laughs) We enter the path. We enter the path. and And we cultivate these qualities. And as we cultivate the qualities, the qualities deepen the wisdom. And as the wisdom deepens, the qualities come out even more. So the two the two go together. So the so it's this it's this twofold path. This twofold path, but the two the two aspects of it, the the developing, the cultivating, the walking along the path, and the the and the the kind of the culmination, the manifestation of the wisdom, they happen simultaneously. It's not two separate things. And they each reinforce each other. So our actions, actions, very much an ethical issue. Looking at our actions in the world and seeing how they're impacting on us and impacting on others. And the next one, the uh, one, two, three, four, the fifth of the eight, and the third of the ethical aspect is right livelihood. Right livelihood. Looking at our livelihood, I always found this one interesting because the the Buddha, I'm a bit puzzling because the the Buddha was teaching mostly monks. (laughs) That livelihood? (laughs) What's what's this livelihood? (laughs) But I learned staying in the monastery that the monks very much have a livelihood. And their livelihood is, is their practice and their support of the lay people. And the the livelihood is very much um, the livelihood is very much a practice of cultivating right intention. And it's very much a practice of cultivating right speech and right action. And 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 I know I know a lot of us 
have livelihoods that we really question. And I think it's important that we question them. It's important that we question our livelihood and question it from the perspective of ethics and question it from the perspective of our intention for life. What do we want to manifest in our lives? And how is it affecting ourselves and others? And some of us find us in jobs that, that appear to be quite unethical. And some of them actually are quite unethical. And then the question comes up, oh, do I have to quit my job? And then the fear comes in, but what if I don't find another one? What if there isn't another one? Or what if I get one but I have to take a big pay cut? What if I lose my pension? And these are all, they're all quite reasonable and quite valid and quite important questions to, uh, to, to ask, to ask ourselves and to, and to consider. And, but sometimes, sometimes I think from an ethical standpoint, I think sometimes some people in the jobs they're in really should be quitting their jobs, no matter what the answer is to these other questions, no matter what the fear is. Especially when there's, especially when there's, when there's the dukkha of having the ethics, but doing a job that just doesn't fit at all. But sometimes, maybe it can be just a matter of, um, of how am I doing my job? It can be a matter of relationship to the job. So, so sometimes, sometimes I think I think we can be creative in our work and find ways find ways of making what appears to be unethical start to move. Maybe we can influence others in the in the workplace, or we can um, start treating um, customers or clients in a different way, and start to bring in an ethical aspect to it. We have we have these um, ethical mutual funds, and uh, you know people put all their money into ethical mutual funds. I'm not sure how ethical any mutual fund is, but <laughs> but put all the money into ethical mutual funds. But I know people who put money into unethical companies buying shares so they can go to the meetings and vote and try to change things. So there's no, there's no, there's no formula answer. There's no yes or no. There's no, yes, this is right and this is wrong and this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. It's for each one of us, each one of us to examine our speech, our actions, and our livelihood. And see, how is this with my intention? How is this with my understanding? How is this with what I learned from the teachings and from my insights and experiences on that retreat? Speech, action, livelihood, ethics. And then we come to the meditation aspect. And 
this med- the meditation aspect also has three parts to it. And the first part, which again I, I think is very much a bridge, a bridge between the ethics and the meditation. And very much related to ethics, and it is right effort. Right effort. And um, Brad spoke a little bit about effort last night, and um, effort. We, um, we, we, we tend in the West, we, we tend to um, downplay effort on retreats and when we're teaching. And there's, um, there's, there's a reason for this. And the reason, the reason is that in the West, we are so strongly conditioned to effort. We're very good at it. We know how to do it. We don't need teachings on making effort. We don't need to be taught. We don't need to practice it. But we're not so good at not efforting. We're not so good at just being. And so we put the emphasis on just being to try and bring some balance into our lives, to try and learn that there is another way of living. In Asia, the teachers all go, work, work, (laughs) try harder, stay up later, get up earlier, don't stop. (laughs) Because the Asians are... (laughs) <laughs> they know how to be. They they're good at that. And 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 so so it's really important for us to learn to to let go of the effort, to drop the effort, to learn to just be, and and to see what that shows. What does the non-efforting reveal for us? But we have to remember it's a middle path. It's a middle path. It's not the path of all effort and all striving. And it's not the path of all, well, just sit back and just watch it all happen. I'll just sit back and let it be. Effort. Effort is an important part. But the, but the trick is right effort. Skillful effort. And... Um, Where's my list? <laughs> Here's my list. <laughs> the Buddha, in his compassion and in his wisdom, gives us, gives us lists of, of how to make right effort. And, and in one discourse, he speaks specifically, I, I can never remember these, so I don't expect you to remember them. <laughs> I can remember them, but not in the order, and not, not all at once. But... Um, in, in one, one discourse, he's specifically addressing the efforts to make in the presence of persistent, dominating, overbearing, overwhelming, disturbing, distracting thoughts. <laughs> okay, so when when a thought just uh, a th- you're having having a thought and it's some terrible thought. <laughs> And it just won't go away. And you're sitting there, go away, go away, go away, and it won't go away. So the Buddha gives a list of, of right efforts to, to do with that. So the first right effort, the first right effort is, um, has several different bits to it. Um, but, um, a piece of it is 
make the effort to give attention to the impermanence of it. Give attention to the arising and the passing, the coming and the going. So, so, uh, so this is this is coming out of the content, and 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 this is what we've we very much emphasize this on the retreat. So, a very skillful way of doing this is come into the body and see if you can feel it, but get out of the story, get out of the words, and see if you can see that it's. It's changing. It's not solid. It's not permanent. And as soon as you can see a crack in it, go into the crack. <laughs> yeah, so see, see the impermanence. See the unsatisfactoriness of it. To give attention to the unsatisfactoriness of it. Um, also, um, in, as, as part of this, it's, um, it's um, in, in specific instances. So where there is anger or ill will, do metta practice. So take the attention away from it. It's directing the attention to something else. So direct the attention away from the story to the impermanence, or direct the attention away from this this terrible anger to metta. Okay, so this is the first method. If this doesn't work, (laughs) if this doesn't work, he says to reflect on the danger of the thought. Reflect on the danger of the thought. Reflect on where is this going? What's it doing to me? It's like the um, it's like the volcano woman seeing how her anger was burning herself. This is the danger, and then burning others. This is the danger. So reflect on the danger of your thoughts. And if this still if this still doesn't work, just don't give attention to it. <laughs> Turn your attention to something else, and this takes effort. Each each one of these is progressively stronger effort. I, I imagine you figured that out by now. Make the effort. Just turn away from it. Direct your attention to something else. And this and this again could be metta. If that still doesn't work, look for the cause of the thought, and stop the cause. <laughs> look for the cause of the thought. And stop the cause. So, what's caused the thought? So maybe, so maybe there's some overwhelming thoughts, and and you look at it and you see, well, it all started with this pain in the knee, and then I started squaring at my knee, and then it got spread to someone else, and and it's, but it started with this pain in the knee. Where did that pain in the knee start? Well, it started because I was trying to sit too long, and and I was too tense in my sitting. Ah, so if I just relax or if I just move my knee a little bit. Okay, so so find find the cause and remove the cause. And again, it's not easy. It takes it takes effort. And if this still doesn't work, he says, with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of your mouth, beat down, constrain and crush the thoughts. This is the last resort, and this is this is 
And this is where Brad was getting at last night when he was talking about say no. Just say no, no, no. I'm not going there. And this takes a lot of effort. But sometimes we have to make the effort. Some other forms of effort that the that the Buddha spoke of. Um, there's the the effort, the effort to discern, and the so, and it's the effort to discern what thought is worth giving attention to and what thought isn't, and then just the effort to not give attention to the ones that aren't worth giving attention to. Another one is. Um, the effort to guard the sense doors. And I think this is a this is a uh, this is a really important one in in our lives to guard the sense doors. So, um, how much is um, watching television affecting your life? How much? How many newspapers are you reading? How much radio are you listening to? How many? Um, how many advertisements are you being bombarded by every day? And, and seeing the effect of all of this on you, and, and if you're seeing that there's a negative effect from it, that there's a harmful effect, then guarding the sense doors, reading less, watching television less, talking less, guarding the, guarding the sense doors. As a, as a protection. And again, it takes effort. And then he, he talks about the use of food, clothing, medicine, and shelter. The use of food, clothing. So using, using food, clothing, medicine, and shelter in skillful and appropriate ways to, to protect us. You know, so it's, it's protecting our health. It's making effort to take care of our health. I would add exercise to the list. But it's making effort to take care of ourselves. And sometimes it does take effort. Sometimes we get pretty lazy and pretty sloppy. We can be good at taking care of others, but we're often not so good at taking care of ourselves. Um, Next one is avoidance. Avoidance. So that's something that's got a bad rap in meditation. You don't avoid, you open to. We open to. But avoidance. Some situations are worth avoiding to. Avoiding. The the Buddha the Buddha speaks specifically of avoiding wild elephants and wild dogs and bramble patches and cesspits. <laughs> <laughs> And I think those are all wise things to avoid. <laughs> but I think we can also look and see, what's the wild elephant in my mind? Where's the cesspit in my mind? What activities in my life are bramble patches? You know, and, and, we, and, and we recognize what situations, what thoughts, what mindsets, what's harmful for us. What's really harmful for us? And sometimes the effort to avoid. You know, if there's, a, if, there's, if there's an issue with addiction, the effort to avoid the substance. Avoidance. 
um, removing. Just don't tolerate. <laughs> don't tolerate it. So again, this is saying no, no, no. And the last one is the effort to develop mindfulness, to develop the investigation factor, to develop energy, to develop joy, to develop calmness, to develop concentration, and to develop equanimity. The effort to cultivate these qualities within ourselves. And these, this list of seven things is, 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 um, is referred to by the Buddha as the seven factors of awakening, the seven factors of enlightenment. These are the seven factors that must be present for insight to really show in a way that transforms us. So, right effort. So finding, really looking in our lives and seeing where is effort really supportive and really necessary, right? Effort. And then the next one is right mindfulness. Mindfulness. We've spoken a lot enough. I think we've spoken enough about mindfulness. Mindfulness, mindfulness really being the foundation of the whole works because without mindfulness, none of the other is possible. So we put so much emphasis on on developing mindfulness. And then the last one, the last one is concentration, right? Concentration. And concentration, I, I think this is the first time I've mentioned the word concentration on this retreat, and I don't think Brad has mentioned it at all. And yet, sure enough, second, third days, people come, oh, I can't concentrate. Well, who told you to concentrate? <laughs> You know, concentra- concentration. Concentration is a factor on the eightfold path. It's it's interesting that he puts it at the end of the path. It's the last, um, but again, it's right concentration. And so often with with concentration, what we mean is I just have to uh, just force. And concentration becomes a very tight thing, making a lot of effort and a lot of striving just to hold the attention. I just got to be aware of at least ten breaths in a row. If I can't do that, I can't meditate. No concentration. And, and, and it just becomes this very tight thing. And, and, and what's, what's both wonderful and both kind of sad at the same time is that it works. <laughs> we can get concentration like that. We can get very concentrated like that. But it's not right concentration. Right concentration. The Buddha, the Buddha, the Buddha says that the prerequisites, the prerequisites for right concentration are happiness and calmness. Happiness and calmness are prerequisites for right concentration. And if we if we look if we if we look at our lives at times in our lives when when concentration just naturally comes it's times when we're happy and it's times when we're really content with what's happening with what we're doing it's times when we have energy it's times when we have a real interest when we're doing something that we're really interested in and the energy comes and and we're just and we just naturally come to rest and the attention just naturally comes to focus on it 
This is right concentration. So right concentration isn't something that we get. It's not something to get. It's something which arises when the conditions are right. And the main conditions being happiness and calmness. And so we have the meditation aspect, and of course the meditation aspect, the the effort, the mindfulness, the concentration. When, When all of this is at work and balance and all these other factors are present, then the insight comes and it brings us back to the wisdom. And so the path becomes a cycle. It's a cycle. And so the path, it's not that we come to the path and we're finished. That's it. Got it. This is enlightenment, all done. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. And and all of this, again, I think is very much, very much pointing to an ethical life. It's very much pointing to how we manifest, what we manifest in our lives, what we manifest through our speech, our actions, and our livelihood our actions, our speech, and our thoughts. So real real encouragement, real encouragement as, as you leave the retreat to, to really, really reflect on the teachings you've heard here, to reflect on your experiences, to reflect on your, your insights, and, and, to, and as much as possible to really let it all settle into your being. And don't try to take it with you, but let it come with you. And then give attention to how it's manifesting. How is it all manifesting in your lives? And, and is it manifesting in a way that you would like it to? So these, these four statements, the, the dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the ending of dukkha, and the and the path, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, are referred to as the Four Noble Truths. And they sum up the whole of the Buddha's teachings. So I mentioned this morning mindfulness of the teachings. So mindfulness of the teachings is bringing mindfulness to these four statements, to these four truths. And, and bringing mindfulness to your own actual experience of it and how they show in your life. And, and if you're giving attention to that and making the effort to, to manifest that, then you're very much on the path and you're very much manifesting Nibbana. So let's sit quietly for a couple of minutes.
May all beings know and deeply understand the Four Noble Truths. May all beings abide in Nibbana. May all beings manifest kindness, compassion, and joy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.